listening to the White Oak Houston podcast, the official podcast of White Oak Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. White Oak exists to help people come alive to the wonder of the gospel and fully follow Jesus. For more information, please visit us online at whiteoakchurch.net. chapter 18, verse 10 through 14 is what we're going to read this morning. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, that's totally fine. Uh, The words uh, should be on the screen behind me. And uh, we'll read this together as the people of God. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Amen. You may be seated. This is God's word over us this morning. Well, I just want to welcome you again here to the White Oak Faith family, and we truly do see ourselves as a family, and I hope that this is evidence of that, and we are so glad that you have decided to come and worship with us this morning. Again, my name is James Chandel. I'm the discipleship pastor here, and uh, I really do believe that every time that we open up God's Word, that it has something for us. It meets us exactly where we are at. And so I hope this morning God's Word and my message reaches you in a place that gives you hope challenges you at times, but also leads you into all that God has for you this morning and in your life. We're going to talk about a phrase this morning, and it's a phrase you have probably heard before, and the phrase is three words, and the phrase goes like this, God loves you. God loves you. We've heard that phrase before, and I have kind of a love-hate relationship with this phrase. I love the phrase, but I also hate the phrase. And let me tell you why. This is why I love the phrase. I love the phrase, God loves you, because it is true. Absolutely, unequivocally, biblically accurate, true. God loves you. It is a true statement. But this is why I don't like it as much. I don't like the statement, for one, because it doesn't tell you how God loves you. It's just a simple statement, God loves you, but how does he do that? What does it mean for me in my life? It's not very descriptive. We can make it mean kind of whatever we want it to mean. God doesn't prove anything with that sentence. I also don't like it because it is one of the most used phrases in Christianity that I can think of. I don't think we say anything more than that sentence, God loves you. And the problem with the English language, really the problem with any language, is the more you say something, the less meaningful and powerful it becomes. Isn't that true? The more you say something, the more you hear a phrase repeated, the less meaningful it is to you, the more it slides in one ear and out the other. And we actually have a word for this phenomena uh, in our language, and we call it a cliche, right? Cliches are phrases that we hear so often that they're almost meaningless. They're almost like, come on, you're really going to say that? And unfortunately, I think God loves you has become a a cliche in Christianity. When I say it, I bet it barely registers with you. I don't think you hear God loves you and your heart starts pounding like, he loves me, he loves me. I don't think any of us really do that. If I posted it on Facebook, you'd scroll past it. If I made it a sermon point, I doubt you would even write it down. Here's the problem with the phrase, 
God loves you. I think that we understand this phrase enough to be satisfied with it, but not enough to be overwhelmed by it. And yet God desires for us not just to be satisfied with his love, he desires for us to be totally and completely overwhelmed by it. I've entitled my sermon this morning, Overwhelmed by Love. God's love is a reality that is meant to break through into your life and overshadow every part of your life. It is meant to shape your thoughts. It is meant to shape your behavior. It is meant to shape your outlook, your perspective, your relationships, what you think, what you say, what you do at your job, how you interact with your family. God's love is meant to break through and shape all those areas of your life. And yet so often I believe that we are just satisfied with this phrase, God loves you. And I think God loves you, if I had to, I'm an image guy, and this is what I think of, God loves you, that phrase is kind of like a dusty, dirty window, and it hides a beautiful landscape behind it. I want God to break through into your life. And as a pastor, I personally feel the pain of writers and musicians and people who who post on Facebook who try to communicate God's love because we're like reaching for words to try to describe it. Right? We're reaching for adjectives and adverbs and descriptions to try to describe how good God's love is. That's why I love that we sing the song Reckless Love. I love that song so much because you can tell the writer of that song is just reaching. He's just trying, man, to figure out how can I explain how amazing this love is. He says it's overwhelming. It's never-ending. It's reckless. It chases me down. It fights till I'm found. It leaves the 99. He's like, I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. And still God gives himself away. He's trying to communicate the amazing love of God. Sometimes words are, alone are not enough. We need an image. And in the song, uh, the, the writer is trying to build an image. And I think what Jesus is going to do in our passage this morning is he's going to build an image of what God's love is like. Jesus does, wants to break through the satisfaction that you feel, and he wants to overwhelm you with the love. And so we're going to talk a little bit about this parable that Jesus gives to us this morning. But you're not going to understand the parable unless you understand uh, things about parables in general. So we're also going to be kind of in a classroom this morning. I'm going to teach you a little bit how to be a theologian. And I like to say this often. If you've been in our church for any amount of time, I like to say that we are all theologians, right? When you think about God, you're a theologian. When you talk about God, you're a theologian. When you read the Bible or talk about the Bible with your friends, you are acting as a theologian. And I want you to be a good theologian because good theologians understand the depths of the love of God. They don't dwell in the shallow area. They go into the deep area of the faith. And I want you to be good theologians. So in order to do that, we have to understand a little bit about parables. All right, so put your theologian hat on. Class is in session. Let's talk about it. Parables, very simply, are earthly stories with a heavenly truth. I've heard it described this way to, be, to me by one of my professors, and that's how I like to describe it. Parables are earthly stories with a heavenly truth. What I love about parables is that they're so earthy. Everything in a parable is like all normal, everyday stuff of life. 
There's family drama that happens, brothers interacting with brothers, a father interacting with a son. You have a shepherd and sheep. It's all normal, everyday things of life, especially for Jesus' time period. They use simple characters. They got brothers, they got a father, son, a shepherd. We understand these characters because we can relate to them. And parables are so earthy, I believe, that they're, they're just straightforward. And yet within them, I believe that God has bombshells for us. Parables are not just simple earthly stories, but they have a heavenly truth. When Jesus gives us parables, he's speaking our language because Jesus knows that humans love a good story, and parables are good stories. So parables are earthly stories, but they also have a heavenly truth. They're meant to shock us, And if you just stay at the surface level of a parable, then you're not going to see how Jesus is trying to shock and challenge you. Think about the parable of the prodigal son. You remember that parable? You've got the son who asked for his father's inheritance and he goes off and he squanders it and he, he, he wasted on wanton living and all this kind of stuff. And he says, you know what? He goes broke and he says, you know what? I'm better for me to be a servant in my father's house than to be out here with nothing. And so he goes back to his father's house and, and probably the hearers of Jesus in the story expect the father to be very angry with the son. And yet at the end of the story, what happens? The father runs to the son. That's the shocking part. That's the challenging part. So every uh, parable has something like that in it. They shock us, they challenge us, and they draw us into the deep truths of God. So as you're looking at a parable, we've got to notice and think about three things. Number one, you have to notice the context of the parable. And if you're taking notes in here this morning, if you want to understand parables and how to figure them out, number one, you've got to look at the context. Who is Jesus talking to? Is he talking to his disciples? Is he talking to Pharisees and the religious leaders? Is he talking to people who are part of his core, people outside of his core? Who is he talking to? Look at the verses before and after. Figure that out. Number two, look at the characters. I'll give you a hint. God is usually in the story. Jesus usually writes himself into the story of his parables. And so look for God in the story. Number three, look for the lesson. Every parable, I believe, probably has one main truth associated with it. And Jesus intends for us to understand what that truth is. So we're equipped with what we need in order to understand the parable. Let's go back to the verses. Look at verse 10 with me. Uh, Jesus opens it up and he says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Let's stop right there. So in the context, if you go back in Matthew chapter 18, at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus is talking to some of his disciples. And if you remember what happened, uh, they were doing something really, really stupid. They were trying to argue who would be the greatest in heaven. That's what they're doing. Can you imagine Jesus walking in on the disciples, and this is the argument that they're having. Who's going to be the best and the greatest in heaven? And Jesus kind of rocks their world a little bit, right? He brings a kid, and he says, you must have childlike faith. Such is the great people of heaven. So this is the context of what Jesus is talking about. And within this, he says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. So Jesus is about to reveal something about God's children. And I believe the main lesson he reveals is that God values every single one of his people. God values every single one of his people. 
I want you to do an experiment with me. If you have the text in front of you, I want you to look at it. I want us to count how many times Jesus uses the word one or references the one. So it may not be one, it may be a different word like it, just to give you a hint. But we're going to count how many times Jesus uses the phrase one. Look at verse 10. Do not despise one of these little ones. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And when he finds it, meaning the one that went astray, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Six times. Six times within these few verses, Jesus talks about the one. Jesus doesn't waste words. And so if Jesus is singling out the one, that means something. I think the Bible, most often when it says God loves us, he's talking collectively about the people of God. But I think also in this particular instance, Jesus wants to point out that God loves you in particular. The Bible says that he formed you in your mother's womb. The Bible says all the days of your life are written out before you when as yet none of them were were written. He calls you by name. Your quirky personality is his fingerprint. Your physical appearance is intentional. There is an intentionality for who you are and the way that you are shaped. And God loves you in particular. Not just this crowd of people, not just the people of God, but you in particular. And God values you so much that he commands every other person who walks on the face of the earth to value you as well. Because he values you. And so as we think about ourselves, we have to recognize that we are valued by God. But we're going to see something in here. There is nothing in this passage that shows that we're valuable in and of ourselves. We don't do anything in this passage. All the reasons that Jesus is going to give for why we're valuable originate with God, not with us. In a world where everyone is jostling for position using money and education and looks and talent and intelligence and all those things, Jesus comes in and he equalizes it all. He says, you're all equally valuable. Contempt is banished from his church. Racism is banished. Favoritism is banished. Jesus says you're valued by God, therefore people better value you because I value you. We are all equally valued by God. And he goes on in the following verses, and specifically in the parable, and he goes on and he talks about the extraordinary links that Jesus and God goes to to prove that we are valuable to him. So this is what I think is so funny. Oftentimes in the Christian life, we're over here trying to prove how valuable we are to God by the things that we do. Meanwhile, God's over here trying to do all these things to prove how valuable we are to him. God's proving to us that we are valuable to him by the things that he does for us, not the things that we do for him. Look at the rest of verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. It says, For I tell you that in heaven... Their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. 
All right, so a little bit of background. You see this phrase, little ones. And just to give you some context, remember at the beginning of Matthew 18, uh, he brings a child in front of the disciples and said, if you don't have faith like a child, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so there's this idea that you, Jesus uses often throughout his teachings to, that, that includes this idea of the little ones. And really that just means followers of Jesus, anyone who has childlike faith in God. And so that's who he's talking about here. God loves and values you so much that he puts heavenly beings in charge of you. So every person is valued by God, and even the most overlooked person has God's attention. Even the most overlooked person in this room has God's attention. And for me, the fact that God runs the entire universe and yet still pays attention to my little individual life To me, that's staggering. The idea that a king or the president of the United States or a senator or whomever would want to call in and check on me, see how I'm doing, for me, that is radical. And it's not something that you see in this world, and yet you see it with God. God cares about the individual just as much as he cares about the whole. There's not a thing that you do that goes unnoticed by God. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. There's not a thing you do that goes unnoticed by God, regardless of how it compares to the person next to you. And I know that for some of us, I don't know if you struggle with this, but sometimes we struggle with going unnoticed. We struggle with uh, thinking about the things that we do going unappreciated. And yet in this, we find that God looks at us. He pays attention to us. For the person who works multiple jobs and doesn't get much acclaim for it to make ends meet, God notices. Someone who serves faithfully in our church, but behind the scenes, so it's not as glamorous as being up here on stage, doesn't get noticed as much, God notices that. The busy mom who can't serve as much in the church because she's taking care of her kids and that's not a very glamorous job, God notices that. The guy who's at work and he's trying hard and his boss isn't appreciating him and he's staying after and all these things. Like, where's my recognition? Don't seek it in people. Seek it in God. He notices that. Maybe come on a Sunday morning, you don't know as many people and you kind of slip in, you slip out and people didn't notice even that you were here. God noticed that. God notices even the most overlooked person in the world. When Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, he said, don't do things to get noticed by other people. Do them to be noticed by God because he sees those things and he recognizes and rewards them. Look at verse 12. This is the beginning of the parable. This is my favorite part. He says, what do you think? I love when Jesus does that. He's kind of Socratic method a little bit here. He wants to get your thoughts on it. He says, tell me, does this make sense? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So I told you that every parable has an explosive truth. And I believe that this is the explosive truth. Even the most wayward person is pursued by God's son. Look at the image. I love this image. Imagine a shepherd. All right, close your eyes if you have to. Imagine you're a shepherd, 
And you've got a hundred sheep. And back in the day, the shepherds knew their sheep so well. They knew every blot. They knew every blemish. They knew every unique characteristic of the sheep that they owned. They had to. They had to recognize which ones were theirs. And the shepherd counts his sheep. And he comes up one short. He counts 99. He says, wait, I have a hundred. So he counts again, right? He counts the sheep again, and he counts 99 again, and an anxiety begins to form up in him because he says, you know what? One of the sheep is missing. And it begins to drive on his mind, and his heart compels him to go after the sheep that was lost. And so he puts on his gear, he leaves the 99, and he chases after the one in the mountains and in the wilderness. This is the image that Jesus builds Your journey into the wilderness does not daunt God. Your journey into rebelliousness, your journey into the dark places of life do not daunt God. God will always chase you into the wilderness. His heart compels him. God loves his creation, and he will chase after them. And he doesn't care about the consequences. The cross of Jesus proves that God does not care about the consequences of sin. He does not care about the consequences of chasing after us. God says, no matter what, I will chase you down. Do everything I can for you to repent and to come back. To quote the song, Reckless Love, again, we sing, there's no shadow you won't light up. No mountain you won't climb up coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down in your pursuit of me. There's this image of the sheep that are constantly running away. And God is constantly chasing after us. Corey Asbury, uh, the writer of the Reckless Love song, wrote this about the song. He says, God's love is not cautious. No, it's not. No, it's a love that sent his own son to die a gruesome death on the cross. Yet he gives himself away again and again. The recklessness of God's love is seen most clearly in this. It gets him hurt over and over. Make no mistake, our sins pain his heart. And 70 times 7 to forgive is a lot of times to have your heart broken. Yet God opens up and allows us in every single time. His love saw you when you hated him. When all logic said that they'll reject me, he said, I don't care if it kills me, I'm laying my heart on the line. God has overwhelming love for you. If you're in here this morning and you're asking the question, where do I stand with God? Right? You got filth in your life. You got things happening in your life, making a mess of your life, cohabitating with your girlfriend, making a mess, whatever it is. Where do I stand with God? That's kind of a question between you and God, but I know one thing for sure. He is pursuing you. He's chasing after you. It's amazing for me as a pastor, as I get to talk with people, just how common it is for someone who uh, maybe sins or for someone who's been out of the church for a while to really feel embarrassed about getting back into church, getting back into faith, getting back into following God. And they have this idea that like, man, God is angry at me. God doesn't want me to come back. The church is going to judge me. God is going to judge me. And yet if that's you in here this morning, in reality— Per this parable, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 who needed no repentance. Anytime we turn back to God after we sin, heaven erupts into celebration. 
and we run away and God chases us and we turn back and heaven erupts into celebration and then we run away and then he chases us down and we come back and heaven erupts into celebration over and over and over and over again. That is the overwhelming love of God. And when you hear the phrase, God loves you, I hope that you put away this stale, dusty window and that you would open it up and see a God who chases after you, no matter where you're at, into the dark places, into the wilderness, God chases us. We are the lost sheep, and he chases after us. But before we close, there's one more question that I think that we have to answer. And uh, if you'll look back with me at verse 13, uh, as I was reading this, uh, it was uh, something that just stuck in my mind, and I felt like I had to talk about it. It says, and if he finds it, meaning a lost sheep, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So the question that pops into my mind as we talk about this one, as we talk about the wayward sheep, as we talk about the person who's in sin and that we're chasing down, what about the 99? What about the 99? I think it's easy if we're living life for God, if we're faithful, if we're serving in the church, we're good with our family, I think it's very easy for us to hold in contempt the one who's going astray. It's easy, easy for us to think about, man, why are they getting all the attention? All right, it's kind of like you've got a family and you've got one sibling or whatever who's kind of always going off and all the attention's on them and the parents are always trying to get them to come back and you're just doing your thing, right? And you're like, man, why is all the attention being put on them? Maybe you're thinking, we as a church, why are we so focused on the outsider? Why are we so focused on new people coming in? Because I believe that's who God is focused on. Finding the lost sheep will always be the focus, always first on God's mind. Because we believe in a bold gospel. And a bold gospel means that we pursue relentlessly those who are running away from God. And so when you ask, what about the 99? I believe that Jesus invites us to join him on his mission of love, of pursuing people in love. We cannot stop that as a church. We are called to be a part of God's redemptive work in the lives of the people around us. We're called to follow God's example of love and pursue people in love. Neighbor, coworker, friend, someone in the church who's making bad choices, whoever they are, we pursue in love. We follow the model of the shepherd. I'm reminded of the prodigal son parable again, and I've always related to that one, because if you remember in that story, there's the prodigal son who goes off, and he's uh, living life crazy, and he comes back. But there's also an older brother in that story, isn't there? There's an older brother who follows the example of his father, who continues to be obedient to him. And when the son comes back, they throw a feast for that son. And the older brother's angry. And I always related to this older brother, right? The older brother gets angry. He says, why are we throwing a feast for him after everything that he has done? Why is there no feast thrown for me? This is what the father says to us. He says, my son, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. He was lost. And now he's found. That's why we have to chase after the one. And if you become wayward at some point, we'll chase after you. 
And if I come wayward at one point, chase after me. That's how the church works. We pursue others in love. So we draw to a close this morning. One takeaway that I really want you to have from uh, this message is to not be satisfied with God's love, but to be overwhelmed by it. I was thinking uh, the other day, I had a really hard uh, week, and uh, it was just busy, and uh, it was also really cold, and I hate the cold, and so that just makes everything harder for me. Uh, And for me, 60 and below is probably really cold for me, and so it was just a hard week. A lot going on at the church, a lot going on even personally with Sarah and I, and just uh, getting her ready for a trip, and um, she hasn't been feeling that well, and so just different things. Everything just felt like it collided at once. And uh, Sarah knows me so well. She came up to me and she says, you know what? I'm going to throw you a pity party. (laughs) I'm going to throw you a pity party. She said, sit down on the couch. So I sat down at the couch. She said, I'm going to give you 30 minutes. You can just wallow in your misery. She even played a sad song with me. You know that one song was like, say something, I'm giving up. So she sang that song. And I know it's funny, but what she did after that was probably the most memorable to me. She came up to me and she sat down with me. She put her arm around me. She said, I love you. And not much changed in my life after that. I still had all the same problems. But I went from being overwhelmed by life to being overwhelmed by love. And that's what God intends for us. Life is hectic. Life is overwhelming. But God's love is meant to be even more so. And if we're in the 99 in this particular moment and things are going okay and we're following after God, awesome. But Jesus beckons us to follow him into the wilderness to chase others down and to pull them in. God loves you. And when I say God loves you, I mean you in particular. And he always will. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for um, this time together. I thank you for the power of your word and the image that you have given us of a shepherd who chases us down. You don't care about the consequences. You don't care even that we're running away. You just want us back. So I just pray, Father, for every person in this room. First, for every person who might feel overlooked, pray that, they'd be, that they might be reminded that you are watching them, that you care about their life, and that you are guiding and directing them. For every wayward person, not only in this church, but in our families, in our circle of friends, at our work, Lord, I just pray that you might pursue them in love, relentless, overwhelming love. I just pray that you'd be with us, Lord, and help us to draw into that and to make that our mission as well. We love you, and it's in the name of the Father. Son.